Hey guys, and a warm welcome from the corner of North Wales where the True Crime Enthusiast podcast comes from. I'm Paul, the creator and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are you guys, and I thank you so much as ever for joining me. If you're a new listener, then hi, and I hope you'll stick around. Old friends, well, you probably know me by now, and it's great to have you back. So here we are then, two-thirds of the year gone, and we're down to the last couple of episodes of the second series of the show by now. Don't be too crushed, I shall of course be back before you miss me. If you miss me, that is. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there, eh? Who loves me? I hope everybody's well this week. Are you enjoying the peace of children now they've gone back to school? Listen to that, listen to that. If it's silence, that means the kids are back in school. Wonderful. So aside from preparing for the next series of the show, there are a few other exciting developments in the pipeline concerning the show that I'm currently involved with. So it's busy times as ever here. I'll say more when I know more myself. In the break between series, I'm also going to look at tweaking the Patreon tier rewards a little bit. Maybe introduce something new or even sort out some proper merchandise. Good or bad idea? What do you think? You know that I always value your input and feedback, so I'd be interested to hear any thoughts or ideas about this. You can, of course, get in touch with me at the usual place. On the subject of Patreon, Thanks very much and shout outs to my latest Patreon supporters this week. That's namely Dan Reed, Deb Stronach, Jen Rodriguez, Elizabeth Baker and the fantastic Seeing Red podcast. Thanks so much guys, it's very much appreciated and I hope that the bonus episodes have gone down well for you. There's eight of the bad boys up there now for grabs with another coming on the 1st of October. And you guys out there, yes all of you guys, you too can have these for less each month than... Well, if you like me anyway, and your car is like landfill, you're having shrapnel in the bit underneath the handbrake. Links to the Patreon page where you can learn how to grab these, along with the contact and social media details for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, are of course with my show notes this week. Now I have two promos for inclusion on the show today, There is, and these are two of the best of their kind out there. Firstly, it's Bloody Murder, yeah, it's another great one from Down Under, and for me, it's one of the big four from down there. I'll leave you to guess the other three. The hosts are Tara Saraban and Barney Black, who each week team up to scroll the globe, seeking out great and grisly murder cases. It's an ace show, and it's one well worth checking out, even if they do sometimes, without them knowing, nick some of the cases from my fridge chalkboard. No, I'm just kidding. Great minds think alike and all that. Here's Barney and Tara to tell you more about Bloody Murder. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favourite podcatcher. Sound pretty good, eh? It's over to the US now to a show called Voice of the Victim, and this one lives up to its title because it brings tales that really do speak for the victims of abuse and horrific crimes. It's well-researched, well-written and presented, with cases that are sought out and they're not your run-of-the-mill crimes that are the tempting go-to for many a podcast. See what you think. Please take it away, Ryan and Rosie. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. We are the Voice of the Victim podcast. Every Thursday, we discuss cases that have been influenced by abuse in some way and try to make sense of these senseless things. We also try to identify the missed opportunities where people could have made a difference in the future of the victim. We hope to help others know what to look for so we can protect ourselves and our children. Subscribe to us on your favorite app and help us spread our message. And remember, if you see something, say something. We are all the voice of the victim. How great do both of those sound, eh? Thanks Tara, Barney, Ryan and Rosie. How is that not a band, by the way? Tara, Barney, Ryan and Rosie. It's already got platinum written all over it, that has, hasn't it? You can find Bloody Murder and Voice of the Victim wherever you source your podcasts from. 
If you've liked the snippets that you've heard, you know, they're on iTunes, Podcast Addict, all of the usual places like that. And links to both are with my show notes as ever this week. You can also catch the hosts on social media. You can usually find them by typing in the show's title. They are a friendly bunch and they do welcome interaction. So have a search for them and make sure to check out Bloody Murder and Voice of the Victim. I've listened in and I recommend and hope that you guys can also. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a tale from the south coast of the UK and a hark back to the late 1980s and early 1990s. A few weeks ago on the show, there was an episode that dealt with obsession and how an infatuation with a person can grow until it results in tragedy. And this week's episode is a similar one. I've said before that a belief of mine is an episode is as long as it needs to be and I hope that you don't find this episode too repetitive and nor do I hope that I've waffled on and gone right around the houses to bring you this horrific tale. I haven't tried to be dramatic with it, it's just what happened. And in something that's not done very often here on the show, the case in question doesn't just take place in the English county of Cheshire but it also has links to the county of West Sussex also and even a trip across the Atlantic Ocean to the US, to Boston, Massachusetts. Spread throughout the three locations, this week's episode shows just what obsession can mean to some people, and how it can lead to a person losing all rational thought, and the lengths they'll go to when that obsession becomes fatal. I've entitled the episode this week, Deadly Infatuation, and that's exactly what this horrific crime resulted from. It's not me trying to sound like some crappy 90s action straight-to-video movie. Please be advised that this week's episode does contain details and descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. So using your discretion all, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back this week at a case of deadly infatuation. Catherine Ayling was a carefree, intelligent and attractive, outgoing young woman. She'd been born and raised into a close-knit family on the south coast of the UK, attending school in the seaside resort of Littlehampton in West Sussex. A dark-haired, attractive girl, Catherine had done well in school, especially in humanities, and upon leaving she'd opted to further her education and chase her lifelong dream of becoming a teacher by going to college to study further and qualify for this. After searching for a few colleges and narrowing down her options, the college that she'd chosen for her studies was more than 200 miles away from her home, up in the town of Alsega in Cheshire, and Catherine had begun attending here in 1987. It was a big move for the naturally shy girl to up sticks from her father and siblings and move so far away, but she did, and she soon made many friends due to her naturally warm personality. As a student of humanities at Crewe and Alsager College of Higher Education in Cheshire, she soon found herself with many other people in the same boat, away from home for the first time, and she soon settled in. It is a pretty nerve-wracking thing doing that, isn't it? I remember how I felt when I first went into the Air Force for training. But you soon find that other people are in the same boat as you, you soon make friends, and you take comfort from the fact that you're not alone, and that helps massively. So Catherine was no different. Before long, she found herself mixing her studying and social life with equal measures of enthusiasm and effort, and was soon happy and settled at the college. By 1989, Catherine was 22 years old and had her whole life ahead of her with her sights still firmly set on becoming a lecturer of humanities, as this had been a dream subject to teach for several years. She worked hard at her studies for this, and by 1989 had had a couple of successful terms at the college under her belt studying for it. She'd made many friends on her course easily enough, soon overcoming her initial shyness, and by that time she shared a house not too far from the college with a number of other students. She had no regular boyfriend at that time, even though she was an attractive woman and had a string of suitors. She was simply just happy as she was, studying hard and equally having a carefree good time with friends. It sounds pretty idyllic and a happy existence that, doesn't it? Sadly, through no fault of Catherine's, it was soon to come crashing down. 
In the summer of 1989, Catherine was thrilled to be one of several students offered a place to further their studies as an exchange student on a program working in the USA. She jumped at the opportunity and in August of that year she packed her bags and together with eight friends from a college humanities course, she flew out to begin the exchange at Massachusetts and Bridgewater State College near the city of Boston in Massachusetts. Catherine and her friends soon settled into their work in American holiday, enjoying such a fantastic opportunity, and her easygoing nature, coupled with friendly personality and her great looks, brought Catherine several male admirers while she was there. She was to accept several offers to go out on dates, perhaps out to a restaurant for dinner, or for a drink at bars, or to attend any parties that were going on. But her mindset remained the same. She was career-driven, and she wasn't looking for a serious relationship. All of that could come later. Fun loving in good companies, fine, but was happy with that as it was. That was as far as she wanted it to go. And the majority of her suitors accepted this. They could respect and understand her stance, and they could take no for an answer, with understanding and no harm done. Why would you flog a dead horse? There was just one of them who couldn't, because he'd become smitten with Catherine the moment he'd seen her. While smitten is actually an understatement, he'd fallen head over heels in love with her. 25-year-old Curtis Howard, a powerfully built 6 foot 4 inch tall African-American student known to his friends as the Hulk, was by far the biggest admirer of Catherine, and he didn't want to take no for an answer. He came from a different world to the one Catherine had come from, having been brought up in a broken family of seven children in one of Boston's most deprived slum areas. However, due to hard work and natural intelligence, Curtis had risen from the trappings a society such as this could bring. He'd applied himself at school, obtained good exam results, and had been accepted for college, where he attended Massachusetts and Bridgewater State. Popular and well-liked, he showed great promise and seemed destined for a high-flying career in the computer industry, thanks to a scholarship that he'd received from Pepsi-Cola for a self-updating data inventory computer system that he'd designed and implemented for them while he was still in his teens. As soon as Catherine had arrived on campus with the other exchange students from the UK, Howard had noticed her immediately and had become instantly smitten. He wasn't short of confidence and had homed right in on her and asked her out on a date pretty much as soon as she'd arrived. At first, Catherine had refused politely as she wasn't interested, but undeterred, he kept on and on at her until his persistence turned to what would more likely be deemed pestering to you and me. Eventually, after months of him asking and asking and constantly being rebuffed by her, Catherine began to fear that her constant refusals to go out with him may possibly be interpreted by others as a racial snub to Howard, which of course they weren't. With this fear weighing on her mind, she eventually gave in to his constant demands and to pacify him, accepted a date with him. One date. When Curtis Howard arrived to collect Catherine for their arranged night out, she was unprepared for the effort that he'd gone to. He stepped out of a chauffeur-driven stretch limo, immaculately dressed in the full Saturday night fever white-type tuxedo and handed her a large bouquet of roses. He then ushered Catherine into the limousine, then whisked her off for an evening of dinner and drinks at one of Boston's most expensive waterside restaurants. He was undoubtedly out to make a big impression here, and undeniably Catherine was very impressed. Personally, I'd be a bit, uh, yeah, it's too much that, mate, and I'd be uncomfortable with being the recipient of such a fuss but Catherine was obviously being polite and keeping the peace. By all accounts, they had a pleasant evening together, but however, it still made no difference to her. Regardless of the lengths Curtis Howard had gone to, Catherine still wasn't looking for a relationship, not with Curtis Howard, not with anyone. When he saw her home at the end of the night, despite him chancing his arm and trying to come in for coffee, she instead just thanked him for a pleasant evening and bade him good night at the door, heading to bed alone. 
The following day, undeterred, Curtis Howard was back on the telephone again, asking Catherine out for another date, but she politely turned him down, not wanting to lead him on. He obviously didn't get the hint, because he rang Catherine again and again over the ensuing weeks, asking her out, and each time she yet again turned him down, now realising that he was beginning to develop a fixation about her. She was uncomfortable with this, and did her best to avoid him now as much as she could, hoping that out of sight, out of mind would work, but he seemed to be everywhere that she was. Then to her dismay, on an overnight field trip that had been organised by the college to Montreal just after this, Catherine found that she had been allocated to stay in a room with three other students, and one of these was Curtis Howard. On the trip, he again pressed his attentions constantly to Catherine and pestered her to sleep with him. And because she was by now extremely uncomfortable, and of course because she didn't want to sleep with him, she instead made hurried arrangements to swap with another student and move to another room. She'd begun to become worried by his persistence, and she confided this in a few friends that night, but ultimately comforted herself with the fact that in a few weeks her exchange would be over, she'd be flying back home to the UK, and Curtis Howard would be out of her life for good. She could ride it out till then, because she'd be thousands of miles away from someone that she'd never see again. As things were to transpire, Catherine was sadly to soon have to cut even shorter her exchange visit and go home to West Sussex earlier than expected but the 3,000 miles between her and Curtis Howard wouldn't be the cut-off that it would be for most people. If someone you were keen on moved suddenly so far away, sure you'd be a bit down at first, but if you only had one date and you'd been constantly told that they weren't interested, eventually you'd realise that you were flogging a dead horse and you'd move on, wouldn't you? The distance would surely make you do that. Not with Curtis Howard, though that distance would only serve to intensify his growing obsession for Catherine. The morning after the Montreal trip where he badgered Catherine for sex, Howard apologised to her for his behaviour. He seemed to be very keen to stay on good terms with her, and with the forgiving nature that she had, Catherine had accepted the apology, although still wary and anxious more so now to maintain a degree of distance between her and Howard. But a few days later, at the beginning of November 1989, a family tragedy put all concerns about Curtis Howard to the back of her mind. Catherine received a devastating phone call from her sister Sylvia back in the UK, giving her the tragic news that her father, Bill Ayling, had suffered a fatal heart attack at his home in Arundel in Sussex. Catherine immediately dropped everything and after hurried arrangements, she headed home on the first available flight from Boston. She didn't even have time to say goodbye to all of her new American friends before leaving. Losing Bill was a devastating loss for Catherine, as it was her father who'd essentially brought up her and her four siblings, her brother Chris and her elder sisters Sylvia, Angela and Teresa, single-handedly when his marriage to their mother had failed eight years before. Aside from spending a working life in the meat trade, Bill Aylin had combined running a butcher's shop with being a full-time dad and was very close to all of his children, but especially to his youngest daughter, Catherine. He taught them the values of working hard, and each felt his loss greatly. His children all came together for mutual support in their grief, and whilst the funeral arrangements were being made, Catherine went to stay with her sister Sylvia at a home in the village of Wick in West Sussex. It was while she was staying at Sylvia's house that Catherine began receiving telephone calls from America. It was Curtis Howard, who had heard the reason Catherine had had to head home earlier than planned, and was calling to express his sympathy for her loss. When she'd arrived in the US, as she used to do with new friends back then, Catherine had given them her address and telephone numbers back home, for them to be able to reach her to stay in touch. Of course, nowadays, you just add someone on Facebook, and before long, you know all of their aunties, when they last scratched their arse, and what they had for tea on holiday. But years ago, all you got was a token phone number and an address. 
as if he was trying to form some sort of bond between them. Curtis explained to the grieving Catherine that he more than most people knew exactly how she felt, telling her sadly that even as they spoke, his own mother Barbara lay close to death in a hospital in Boston. A few days later, he was on the telephone again to Catherine with the news that his mother had now passed away, and an emotional and angry Howard claimed that he couldn't bring himself to attend a funeral because despite his best efforts, he felt that she'd always loved his other brothers and sisters more than she'd loved him. All of this was a complete wicked lie. Barbara Howard was alive and well in Boston. It was a wicked attempt to gain Catherine's sympathy for his fake loss, resulting in an inroad into her life, taking advantage of her when she was at an emotional low. Heartless or what? Catherine had told her brothers and sisters about the persistent attention of Howard that she'd had to fend off while she was on her exchange programme, and Sylvia was concerned that Howard's behaviour was a bit more than someone holding a torch for another. I mean, there's being keen on someone, but from the sounds of what Catherine had described, this seemed more like someone who was developing a deepening psychosis, a proper obsession about her. Sylvia was particularly concerned and upset by the feeling that she was left with that during the ailing family's own period of grief, Howard seemed more intent on impressing Catherine with his own family woes rather than expressing sympathy and understanding for hers that a friend who really cared would. Eventually, the lives of the ailing children resumed some normality following their loss, and early in 1990, Catherine returned to Cheshire and continued her studies at the Crew and Alsager College of Higher Education. More than ever now, she wanted to make her late father proud and focus upon becoming a lecturer. But her studies were punctuated by the now regular telephone calls from Curtis Howard, many of them late at night or early in the morning, and letters which contained declarations of his undying love for her and how he would win Catherine's heart eventually. She reminded him constantly that she was not interested and even tried to humour him in response to this, telling him that she was too busy with her studies to think of settling down and having children or even having a steady boyfriend. It was a different tack, asking him to stop just hadn't worked, ignoring him hadn't worked, telling him that there was a massive ocean between them hadn't worked and she hoped that by humouring him, he may stop bombarding her with calls and letters and eventually just get the message and accept that she wasn't interested in a relationship with him. But Howard would not take the hint. Instead, the letters continued constantly, and the telephone calls increased. Then a £200 leather jacket arrived from the US as a gift, and Catherine, driven to distraction and more than a bit scared by now, decided that enough was enough. She usually wasn't so assertive with people, but she felt that she'd been pushed into this and there really was no other way. She told Howard harshly once and for all that she didn't see him in a romantic light. If they were staying in touch, it was to be on a strictly platonic basis and that their relationship would never be any more than this. I would personally have cut him off completely here for good, no offers of staying in touch at all. I mean, when is enough chances actually enough? And for a few weeks after this, the letters and telephone calls stopped. And just as Catherine was beginning to really believe that this had been it and Howard had finally got the message, they began again. And this time, they were different. As 1990 continued, they became more aggressive and disturbing. A clearly distressed Catherine described them to friends as Howard ranting and raving in them, and the more she tried to reason with him and placate Howard, pleading with him to leave her alone, the angrier and more abusive he became that she wouldn't return his affections. When she refused to take his constant telephone calls, he'd bombard her with more letters instead. When these were once love letters... They were now so insulting and spiteful that Catherine just burned them without hesitation. Catherine eventually moved accommodation in an attempt to hide from Howard and when he began contacting her friends constantly as well as her, she asked them to tell Howard that she'd left the college. When he was told this, Howard began contacting her sister Sylvia instead 
and when she asked him to leave their family alone, Howard changed tack. He disregarded this and continued the abusive letters, but this time they deludedly began to accuse the ailing family of carrying out a racist conspiracy against him. In each letter and call, he insisted on speaking to Catherine herself, claiming that he'd received racially abusive letters from her sisters and her brother. This was another complete lie. There'd been no letters of the kind. The Ailings had not even written back to Howard, not wanting to fuel his already clear obsession. For the entire Ailing family now, not just Catherine, the situation had become a nightmare. And it was about to step up a terrifying notch. One evening, Saturday the 23rd of June 1990, Sylvia Ailing arrived home from work to discover that she'd been burgled. A few items had been stolen, the usual checkbook and card and small amounts of cash and jewellery, and a couple of hundred pounds worth of damage had been caused as the intruder entered. But this was a bit more sinister than your ordinary break-in. On one of the bedroom doors in the house, words had been scratched deep and crudely into the wood with a knife and when Sylvia read them, she was filled with panic and dread. Alongside a crudely engraved reverse swastika symbol, the intruder had scratched, Catherine is dead. In Sylvia's bedroom, a mattress had been scored open with a knife, and a pillow had been slashed to bits. Left on the bed was a hate-filled note addressed to Catherine Ailing. It simply read, Catherine Ailing, you will burn in hell. Can you imagine how frightening that must have been to find? I mentioned on the show before that I was burgled myself some years ago, and that was bad enough for making me feel uneasy for a period of time in my house afterwards, knowing that some scumbag had been in there. I've also said that I received an anonymous letter like that myself. Well, not quite as horrendous as that, but I did receive an anonymous letter many years ago now. And that was pretty unsettling too. But to be burgled and find chilling messages such as that in one hit, well, it must be absolutely horrific, mustn't it? When Sylvia contacted police to tell them, she was in no doubt who was responsible. And when the terrified woman told the police the entire saga of Curtis Howard's frightening and deluded obsession with her sister, admittedly, they were inclined to agree. But a slight problem with that, Curtis Howard was 3,000 miles away in the US, so could he have got someone to do this for him? The answer was far more simple, but far more frightening. House-to-house -house inquiries in the immediate vicinity of the burglary revealed a witness who'd seen a six-foot-plus black male closely fitting the description of Curtis Howard hanging around the area at around the same time that the house was broken into. The same man, distinctive in a small Sussex village, had also been seen walking up and down near to a pub in the area where Catherine had briefly worked at behind the bar. To the Ailing family, they were in no doubt that this was Curtis Howard. His obsession with Catherine had brought him across the Atlantic Ocean. When a check with immigration at Gatwick Airport revealed that Curtis Howard had indeed entered the UK just some days before, with him now in mind as the prime suspect, police began a search for Howard. Three days later, Sylvia Ailing's fiancé Paddy Hartigan was driving along the Arundel Bypass and he spotted an unmistakable figure walking alongside the hard shoulder. The man had caused such distress to his fiancé's family that his face was imprinted on Paddy's mind. And here he was. It was Curtis Howard. Paddy stopped the vehicle and quickly contacted police to inform them. A patrol car dispatched in response intercepted the man, who was indeed Curtis Howard, and as a result of a stop and search action at the roadside, a checkbook and check guarantee card in the name of Sylvia Ailing that had been stolen in the burglary were found in Howard's pockets. Howard was subsequently arrested and was taken to Arundel Police Station, where in the face of evidence he admitted the burglary at Sylvia's home. He was then asked the reason that he'd come to England, 
and its intentions towards Catherine. I mean, you don't fly 3,000 miles just to break into a semi-detached house and nick a checkbook, do you? At the mention of Catherine's name, Howard suddenly exploded in rage, telling detectives, She turned me down. I will kill her for that. She can join her father in hell. Howard was charged with burglary, criminal damage and possession of stolen goods. And whilst he was in custody waiting to appear before local magistrates, the ailing family made another heartbreaking and disturbing discovery. Following the burglary, Howard had been to the cemetery where only a few months before they'd gathered to bury Bill Ailing and he had desecrated his grave, so much so that the devout Catholic family asked a priest to re-bless the site. Howard had located Bill's grave in the cemetery and had sprayed it with graffiti. He'd made an attempt to smash the headstone and had left another hate-filled letter addressed to Catherine there, propped against the headstone. The soil on the plot had also been disturbed, and Howard had left yet another calling card there, perhaps the one that frightened and upset the ailing family most. Sticking out of the soil was a large kitchen knife that Howard had used to hack away at the grave. Now he wasn't charged with this offence, and ten days after he'd broken into Sylvia's home, Curtis Howard appeared before the local magistrates in Arundel, charged with burglary, criminal damage and possession of stolen goods. He was fined £350 and given a two-year suspended sentence. On the following day, the 4th of July, Howard was escorted to Gatwick Airport by police and immigration officers. He was placed on a flight and he was sent packing back across the pond to Boston. His details and details of his criminal convictions were sent to the US Embassy in London and his passport was marked with details of why he was being expelled from the UK. And that should have been the end of the ailing family's misery. But both they and the authorities were underestimating in just how cunning and how determined Curtis Howard could be. After his deportation from Britain, the ailing family hoped that they'd finally seen the back of him for good, but they were mistaken. He was determined to acquire a false passport, and with this, to be able to get back to the UK. Back to Catherine. His first try at doing this was a complete failure. In March 1991, in a scheme described in a plot device in the Frederick Forsyth thriller The Day of the Jackal, Howard used the identity of someone who died without ever owning a passport and made an application for one in the name of the person, Kevin Dion Bell, who was a Boston child who died in 1975. But the application was flagged for this when it was checked and the FBI were alerted. A federal arrest warrant was issued for Howard, yet he was never arrested for this for reasons that have never been revealed. And the details of his exploits in the UK for some reason also unclear, had not been added to Howard's previous US arrest sheet. Yes, he had one. So consequently, the FBI had no idea why he would be attempting to gain a passport by deception. They thought he may possibly be attempting to break into the international drug trade, and his name was added to a watch list supplied to drug-producing nations such as Mexico and Colombia. But because the UK is not considered to be a drug-producing nation, the details of Howard's deception attempts were not forwarded back to the UK. Serious communication breakdown there, isn't it? Absolutely terrible. And this brush with the law did absolutely nothing to deter Howard in his attempts to gain a passport. A few months later, he managed to con a friend of his, Dwayne Williams, into handing over his birth certificate and completing a passport application. Howard came up with a story of how he was taking Dwayne away on a trip to Canada, hence the need for him to have a passport. Smooth-talking Howard even managed to convince his friend to wear a pair of spectacles, similar to those that Howard wore himself usually, when he had his passport photo taken. He then sent off Dwayne's application but the return address on the form had been substituted for Howard's own address. This application was a success, and Howard received the new passport in May 1991. 
and it worked, for within a few days he was back on a plane bound for the UK. When Howard arrived back in the UK on the 24th of May, he wasted no time whatsoever. He'd flown into Manchester Airport and finding a place to stay, a room at the Holly Trees Hotel in Alsager, he then hired a blue Montego saloon car from a car hire firm in Stoke-on-Trent and set about employing the services of a private detective agency to track down Catherine, who had of course moved accommodation in an attempt to distance herself from Howard's letters and telephone calls. In both of these practices though, Howard used his own name. He gave some cover story to the detectives about wanting to trace an old friend and 500 pounds later they gave him the address of the rented house near to the college that Catherine had moved to that she shared with fellow students. Howard immediately began staking out the house and the college and some other haunts of Catherine's that she'd innocently and unsuspectingly mentioned to him in passing and that he'd stored in his mind. Howard had forgotten nothing whatsoever every single little detail that Catherine had innocently told him about herself was imprinted on his brain. And now he began stalking his prey. Catherine herself a day or two later told some friends of hers that she thought she'd spotted Howard prowling around in the grounds of the college and badly frightened after the torment that Howard had put her through, she confided this in a tutor. The tutor accompanied Catherine on a walk around the college grounds to try to reassure her, but there was no sign of Howard, and Catherine's friends told her that she must be mistaken, putting it down sympathetically to her nerves just being absolutely taut and frayed. There'd been yet another tragic breakdown in communication here, because a fellow student of Catherine's, one who'd been on the same exchange trip to the USA as she had, had actually spotted and recognised Howard near to the college and spoke to him on the evening in question. It was a pleasant enough exchange between them, although the student was very surprised to see Curtis Howard there so far from home. Howard told the student that he'd come to visit friends that he'd made on the exchange trip and this was just accepted. Unfortunately, and quite unbelievably I thought here, Catherine herself wasn't told of this sighting. That's unreal, isn't it? You'd think that the behaviour of someone so obsessive, a stalker like this, would have filtered back to Catherine's friends, and they would have been all over this as it was common knowledge. Whether the person who saw him didn't know about the harassment, I'm not, I'm unsure of. But I would have thought it would have been a talking point. If you bumped into someone who you knew lived in America 3,000 miles away, you'd be like, you never guess who I saw today and especially if it was someone who'd undertaken such a campaign of harassment as Howard had. That's bound to have got about, bound to have been a talking point, and yet Catherine never got to know about this. It was to prove fatal. On the evening of 29th of May 1991, Catherine spent the evening revising in the college library, knee-deep in study for her final exams. Tired, she eventually called it a night at about 9pm and with her arms crammed full of textbooks and papers, she left the library and walked across the darkened campus car park to where she'd left her car, a white Citroen Diane model, registration number AFA837Y. She didn't pay any attention to a blue Montego saloon vehicle, the windows of which had just that day been fitted with special filters that blacked them out parked just a few spaces away behind her vehicle. She'd even walked past the car and not given it a second glance. Upon reaching a Citroen, Catherine noticed that the rear passenger side tyre of the vehicle was flat, so placing her books upon the roof of the vehicle, she opened the passenger door of her car and then placed her books and handbag inside on the passenger seat to address the tyre problem. Curtis Howard had waited and watched her do this, then struck. Two female students walking nearby in the car park were later to give the account to police that they'd heard a scream and looking over had saw Howard forcing Catherine into the passenger seat of the Citroen. Unfortunately, the two women dismissed this as horseplay between a courting couple and they thought no more of it, even as the screams continued. Of course, though, this was no horseplay. 
it's impossible to even begin to estimate the level of fear that must have been going through Catherine's mind right at that moment. She hadn't been seeing things in the grounds, and if friends were all wrong, she wasn't mistaken. It was indeed Curtis Howard. It must have been her absolute worst nightmare come true, that. As she screamed, between each scream, Howard drove a sharp, lock-type knife into Catherine's body, with witnesses later saying that they heard screams continuing for a period of nearly ten minutes before things went quiet. Ten minutes in which Howard slowly and brutally murdered Catherine Ailing, stabbing her a total of ten devastating times. And ten minutes of screaming where nobody came to help her. Can you believe that? Wouldn't you go out and investigate if you heard ten minutes of screaming? You'd have to think that something was seriously wrong there, wouldn't you? Finally, perhaps to ensure that Catherine could scream no more, Howard then slashed her throat deeply in a single motion. When he was satisfied that she was finally dead, Howard then checked that the coast was clear, then lifted Catherine's body out of the now blood-drenched Citroen and placed her unceremoniously into the boot of the rented Montego. He then got into the driver's seat, started the vehicle and drove off. Howard headed south through the night, leaving Cheshire and driving far down the motorways in the Montego, down the M6, the M5 and the M42 until he reached the M40 motorway. He then followed this further south and by the early hours of the morning had ended up at Gatwick Airport, stopping only once to refuel. Here he parked the Montego and its grisly cargo up in one of the bays of one of Gatwick's long-term car parks and switched off the engine. Before catching a bus to the terminal, Howard opened the boot of the car and performed the final deception that he hoped would throw police off his trail and set them on a complete wild goose chase. Somehow, Howard had managed to obtain a few strands of hair from a Caucasian male, and he scattered these throughout the boot of the Montego, even callously placing a few in Catherine's hand so it looked like she'd fought with a killer. Yet Howard left the knife used to kill Catherine in the boot, despite having a journey of over 200 miles in which he could have stopped at any point and disposed of it. Just a few hours later, Five days after arriving in the UK, Curtis Howard was on a plane heading back across the Atlantic. He was back in Boston even before Catherine's body was discovered. Catherine's tutors became concerned when she failed to turn up for her lectures the following day. She was normally a conscientious student and at such a crucial time preparing for exams, it was most unlike her. No one had seen her, she wasn't at her flat, but a car was soon discovered on campus, so she couldn't have gone off anywhere. The concern turned to alarm, and police were contacted, however, when a car was examined. The rear tyre had not just had a puncture, it had been deliberately slashed. The vehicle was found unlocked, and with Catherine's books and handbag on the passenger seat, but most ominous, the interior showed signs of a struggle and was awash with blood. Of Catherine, there was no sign. An urgent police inquiry was launched as it was clear that Catherine had come to some harm and had at the very least been abducted. Inquiries with the frantic family members and West Sussex police led Cheshire police to the name of the person that they were almost certainly looking for in connection with her disappearance, Curtis Howard, and a search for him and Catherine began. Two days later, on Saturday the 1st of June, after a tremendous amount of passenger lists of flights from the US, was cross-checked against a list of car hire registers and hotels in the Alsager area, police learned that a Curtis Howard had hired a Blue Montego from a hire company in Stoke-on-Trent, and forces nationwide were detailed to be on the lookout for the vehicle. At 10.24am that same morning, a routine police patrol checking vehicles around one of the long-stay car parks at Gatwick Airport revealed the Montego where it had been left, and an airport member of staff recalled that the vehicle had been there for a number of days. When the vehicle was opened and searched, it gave up its grisly secret. 
The lifeless body of Catherine Ailing was found in the boot of the vehicle, fully clothed and lying in a pool of blood. Through Interpol, police in the USA were now asked to locate and arrest Curtis Howard, and even the FBI became involved in the search for him. He wasn't found at his home or in any of his known haunts, however, but later that same day, Howard's student counsellor, Dr. Kirk Avery, contacted police. He'd received a tearful and anguished telephone call from Curtis Howard, who had pleaded for his help and told Avery that he was in big trouble. Eventually, he had admitted to the counsellor, I killed Kathy, she died in my arms. He'd then gone on to confess the murder to him. Dr. Avery, who'd learned from newspaper reports in Boston that Howard was wanted by police, asked his student to meet him at Howard's brother Tim's address in the Roxbury area of Boston to discuss the matter, and when Howard agreed to do this, Avery informed the FBI at a sense of duty after what he'd been told. I mean, confidence is okay, but when someone confesses a murder to you, that has to go out the window, doesn't it? So when Howard turned up at that meeting, the FBI were waiting for him. Howard was arrested and taken into custody, and a search of his apartment began. This search was to produce a damning piece of evidence against him. A torn-up, rambling, handwritten letter addressed to a friend of his was found in Howard's bedroom, and in it, Howard confessed to the murder of Catherine Ailing. It read as follows. Dear Francis, My friend, I've done something terribly wrong, something I never thought in my wildest dreams, in my angriest moments. My God, what have I become? Who am I? My friend, what I write to you this final time is the truth, which will most likely be the last bit of truth I will have to say in my most troubled and foolish lifetime. Oh God, help me. Francis, I committed an unforgivable and unspeakable act. I took the life of a person who has never hated me, who never at any time sought to hurt me in any way, a person whose life was twice as meaningful, if not more than mine. My friend, I killed Catherine. I know it sounds unbelievable, for even now, 24 hours after it happened, I can't believe it. It's like it's some bad dream and I can't explain it. Nor can I explain the pain and the guilt I feel, and forever will feel. It wasn't until I held her in my arms, and she called out my name and said she was cold, that I realised it was Catherine I had killed. Seems remorseful, yeah? Reading that, you may be inclined to think so. I personally would say it showed a person who was proper not the full shilling there. Yet he hadn't given himself up if he was so remorseful, and the letter had been torn up and not sent to his friend, instead had been hidden away in Howard's bedroom. He could hardly deny his guilt here, and Howard was kept in custody on the holding charge of obtaining a passport under false pretenses, the attempt that he'd been flagged up for before. Yet when authorities in the UK attempted to extradite him from the US to stand trial for the murder of Catherine Ailing, he fought extradition with everything possible at his disposal, including claims that the British legal system was racially biased and that he would be denied a fair trial due to his skin colour and the fact that the case had already received mass publicity. His lawyer, Geoffrey Dennis, said, He will be fighting extradition. He's been portrayed as a monster with an obsession for white women. After his arrest, the full picture of Howard's background began to emerge. He'd grown up in a Boston housing project, one of seven children, and after graduating from Boston's technical high school, he developed a good working understanding of computers. His scholarship, worth £1,200 in 1986 from Pepsi, was the first that the company had ever issued and was to issue for a number of years. Nicknamed the Hulk, though, due to his imposing size, Howard nevertheless had many friends and was described as a popular computer whiz who was active in the student government body of Bridgewater, a leader that everybody looked towards as an example. His mother and family told of the copious amounts of girlfriends that he had calling for him, and that life seemed rosy for this smart, quiet, high achiever who won scholarships and seemed destined for a career in the computer industry with a company such as IBM. Of course, this is the positive side of Curtis Howard. He also had, from a young age, had a history of mental issues, 
and when in college had flirted with religion by joining the Pentecostal church. But the church did nothing to aid him, because it was here that his obsessive nature really came to the fore. He met a Bermudan-born fellow student at the church named Linda B., and in what would be a chilling precursor of Catherine's ordeal, Howard began to fixate upon Linda. Like Catherine, Linda told Howard that she was happy for them to be friends, but had no wish for a romantic relationship with him, and of course, Howard would not accept this, instead making Linda's life a misery. The familiar letters and telephone calls all began in earnest. Howard would follow her around everywhere, and even numerous times broke into her accommodation. Eventually, one evening in early 1987, Howard dressed all in black and stalked Linda to a restaurant where she was having an evening out with friends. When she left to walk home, he'd lain in wait for her in a darkened alleyway near to her home and had attacked her and slashed her face with a razor, although thankfully not badly injuring her. Linda did report, of course, this incident to police and Howard was arrested, but for an unknown reason, she was later to drop the charges. She also left the college and fled from the area to get away from him. This was far from the only arrest that Howard had to his name. He also had arrests for armed robbery, possession of ammunition and car theft, although he was acquitted of these charges. In 1987, he was arrested for trespassing in a female dormitory and again for the same offence in 1989, just before he met Catherine Aylin. When he was in a holding cell for this latter offence, he attempted suicide by hanging himself with his t-shirt, but prison guards managed to stop him just in time. Howard's mother was to later reflect upon his issues and history of mental illness and obsession. Referring to Linda B, the girl who'd got away if you like, Barbara Howard said, He hounded the girl everywhere and then slashed her with a razor. When girls tell him they're leaving or don't want to go out with him, he goes crazy. He even once stabbed himself in anger when he was turned down. Shortly afterwards, Curtis Howard met Catherine Ailing, and we've just heard how that went. As a postscript, a $40,000 reward offered by the now-defunct News of the World newspaper in the UK was awarded to Dr Avery and it was subsequently donated by him and used to fund a scholarship in Catherine's name at Crew and Alsager College of Higher Education, where a tulip tree was also planted on the grounds in her memory. That tree had grown substantially in the time it took for a killer to face justice, because through legal wranglings and appeals, it actually took more than three years to get Howard extradited to the UK where he eventually went on trial for the murder of Catherine Ayling at Hove Crown Court in Sussex on the 5th of July 1994. At the time, Howard was only the third American in history to be extradited for murder after losing a battle to avoid British justice. He denied murder, but pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Acting for the Crown, Camden Pratt QC told the court that the seeds of the crime were sown in the very first moment that Howard was introduced to Catherine. He became instantly besotted with her and his obsession grew to peak in a very short time. Although Catherine always spoke to Howard, she was not attracted to him. She didn't see him as anything other than a new acquaintance. Yet he became so obsessed with her that he described her as his fiancée to people that he met, despite he and Catherine having had just one single date together. There'd been no relationship and no sexual relations whatsoever between them, Mr Pratt said. He went on to explain how Catherine had returned to the UK in early December 1989 following her father's death. And after this, Howard wrote to her and called her continuously, sending her an expensive leather jacket and money, although she did nothing to encourage him to do this. Howard then changed and began issuing hate-filled threats against not just Catherine but the entire ailing family, culminating in him actually heading over to the UK, burgling his sister's house and desecrating their father's grave. He was arrested for this and described Howard's interview with police in 1991 after his arrest, saying, He said he'd spent a considerable amount of money on Catherine and she would have to pay for neglecting him. 
He said that because of her, he lost his chance of a job with the computer firm IBM and stated that however long it took, she would pay in full for what she'd done to him. He said he had contacts in the UK who had finished the job that he'd started. What absolute delusion. Howard's plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility was accepted by Mr Justice Hidden and sentence was deferred on him until a full psychiatric evaluation of Curtis Howard had been made and the results of psychiatric tests became available. Therefore, it was the 26th of October 1994 when Howard was brought back to court, this time to Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey in London for sentencing. Following a study of the pre-prepared psychiatric reports, Mr Justice Hidden told the court that psychiatrists had reported a long history of mental illness with Curtis Howard, and that at various times in his life he had suffered from paranoid psychosis, which had led to him having delusions of being persecuted. He said to Howard, You've shown signs in the past which have been diagnosed under various labels, but I am satisfied that you show no signs of mental illness at present. You are a cunning, devious, violent and dangerous man. You clearly became obsessed with Catherine and even after her death I find it necessary to protect the public and her family from serious harm from you. I believe you are a potential danger for a long and uncertain period of time. Curtis Howard was then sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of seven years before parole could be applied for. Life is an unusual sentence for a manslaughter verdict, but it was considered a correct and appropriate one in this case. Mr Justice Hidden further said that although medical reports showed Howard no longer to be mentally ill, doctors could not rule out a recurrence of this. Howard did not say anything upon hearing his sentence, but as he was being led away to the cells, Catherine's sister Sylvia shouted, Burn in hell, you bastard! Following the verdict, Catherine's family, 14 of whom had attended the hearing to see a killer face sentence, spoke on the court steps. The sister Sylvia said, There was never a relationship between Catherine and Curtis Howard. Catherine only went out with him once because he pestered her so much. She was not the sort of girl to lead anyone on and she told him where to get off. We are delighted with the sentence, provided he is never ever let out. He's threatened my life and caused heartbreak to all of my family. I've always got to look over my shoulder now. He didn't give Catherine a second chance, and he should never get a second chance. Do you think he should have gotten a second chance for such a crime? The British justice system obviously thought so, for just seven years later, in November 2001, Curtis Howard was paroled and released from Whitemore Prison to be deported. He'd applied for parole at the earliest possible date that he could that had been recommended at his sentencing and had managed to persuade the parole board that he no longer posed any threat. Understandably, this disgusted and frightened Catherine's devastated family who were left in fear that Howard could return to target them. And that's a very real possibility. American authorities have no requirement to supervise deported prisoners released on licence from British prisons. And his determination had got him back to the UK once. Could it happen again? Catherine's sister Sylvia, who'd become the unofficial spokeswoman for the ailing family, reflected on how the ailing family felt about this. He should never in a million years be allowed out. Just put him away and throw away the key. The family is furious. We certainly don't think the time he served reflects the severity of the crime. He should have served the full sentence. We knew he was up for parole some months ago, but the first we heard he was being released was last Wednesday, when the decision had already been made. We're all very unhappy about it, as you can imagine, and we're not sure what we can do. There was very little they could do. They even tried writing to their local MP to see if intervention was possible and the official clinical reply that they received from a Home Office spokesperson was this. A panel of the parole board has decided in accordance with statutory requirements that it is no longer necessary for the protection of the public from Mr Howard to be confined. He will be held in prison until he is deported to the US 
we fully understand the concerns of Miss Ailing's family and extend our sympathies to them. I'm sure that that sympathy made absolutely everything better for them. Yeah, I really am sure. Curtis Howard was deported back to the US in November 2001. His whereabouts and status to date are unknown. The week after his release, a local crew and Cheshire newspaper, The Chronicle, who'd covered the crime extensively a decade previously, held a poll to see what its readers thought of the decision to release Howard. The response was overwhelming. 91% of readers thought that he should remain in jail. I would have voted the exact same as that 91%. If not jail, then at least a secure hospital is where Curtis Howard needs to be. I think British justice got it severely wrong there paroling him, and that to me seems a slap in the face to Catherine's family and in her memory. I'd also be concerned that as someone with a clear precedent for obsessing over women and stalking that led into violence, even before Catherine's murder, as in the stalking and attack of Linda B., Curtis Howard will not be able to help himself, it's his nature, and he'll soon target someone again. Maybe the seven years that he had to think about why he was there locked up did give him time to think about things, and served for him to reflect and show remorse for his crimes. And I know we could get into a whole debate here about punishment versus rehabilitation. I personally think just seven years for taking an innocent life in a calculated and bloodthirsty way such as this is an absolute disgrace. And I wouldn't in a million years have classed him as safe or to be worthy of any release. It also raised my eyebrows that he was found to be suffering no mental illness at that time. I think to an extent he was blinded by his obsession so much so that he couldn't think straight. But he could be cunning in some things, such as obtaining the passport. Yet in the UK, he used his own name and signature when he was hiring a car and hotel, both nearby to where he killed Catherine. He also left the knife with a body, but tried to muddy waters by placing Caucasian head hairs on Catherine. So confusing actions there, and clearly not a person thinking straight. What do you guys think? Was Curtis Howard bad, or mad. In fact, I've got a number of questions there, really. With such a track record of offending and mental illness, why was Howard not more closely monitored by college tutors or student services? Why was he not spoken to by these about his behaviour there with Catherine? And why was there such an unforgivable breakdown in communication so that he was able to slip through the net? He was placed on watch lists for some countries, for God's sake. Surely if you're deemed such a bad egg that you need to go on any sort of watch list, then you'd think that you'd let any country know about them, wouldn't you? Yeah, we can say that security is now tighter post 9-11, but surely he should have been picked up before he got back to the UK, with an arrest warrant issued for him by the FBI. Yeah, they didn't lift him, and Catherine Aylin paid for this with her life. I hope that you found the case of the murder of Catherine Ayling an informative and interesting one, and one that raises a few talking points for you. And that's what the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group thread is for, where the thread is ever now up for your thoughts. Please, by all means, get in touch if you wish to discuss, either there or via the social media links which are with the episode show notes as always. Or you can take the plunge and support the show as a Patreon should you wish to, for a very reasonable contribution, you can have exclusive access as a supporter to at least 8 bonus subscriber-only episodes of the show, plus various other offers that are available for subscribers. Just head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast on Patreon for details, either by searching the show out on there or by using the link alongside the social media handles. You can't miss me, you'll see the creepy hand coming down the window. Boom, there I am. I shall be back next week, same bat time, same bat channel, with the penultimate episode of series or season two, whatever you want to class it, of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm giving no hints about it at all. You shall just have to join me for it. Or if you've missed any episodes up to date, then why? But the back catalogue of episodes of the show are of course still available if you can't wait until then. With that, that's about it for me this week. So I shall wrap it up by saying thanks very much for joining me today. I've been Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and I wish you guys all a safe week, and I'll speak to you again soon.
Take care all and goodbye for now.